0: I'm very happy to see all of you here tonight It's a great privilege to be sharing with you I was asked to choose any verse that I liked out of the Bhagavad Gita So I've taken 7.15 and... um, Excuse me, 7.16 Mm. Those who seek shelter in me, O Arjuna are four types those who are in distress those who seek understanding those who seek power in this world or the next and those who are already already wise and then verse 717 outstanding among the wise is he whose devotion is constant and one-pointed I am above all things dear to that stage, and he of all beings is dearest to me. Now, as we progress on the spiritual path, our devotion and our understanding of what it means to be a devotee is not static. It is an ever-expanding reality that we do not just simply fix in one particular point and then it's decided, I'm a disciple of this path, I'm a Kriyavan, or I'm a devotee, I'm a truth-seeker. The very nature of who and what we are is a, a constantly evolving reality. Swamiji made a comment once because the Desire to measure and evaluate ourselves is almost irresistible for the human mind because this world seems to be linear and fixed. We're always trying to sort of see ourselves in relation to others. And because life itself is often so competitive, we have this, we're born with this idea that everything is limited and we have to compete for position. And it is very difficult for us to fully cognize how readily available God's love and God's blessing is to us. And the progress on, on the spiritual path is not at all what people think it is, which is I become stronger and stronger in this particular way or more and more powerful. Progress on the spiritual path is that we become more and more conscious of the fact that God loves us. And really, that's really all it comes down to. Because everything about our lives, our insecurities, our unhappiness, our irritation with people around us, it all emanates from some inner feeling of incompleteness and lack. And so then, when the world offers us a challenging situation, we already feel vulnerable within ourselves, And that challenge either angers us or makes us feel victimized or makes us feel like we simply can't cope with it anymore because we already feel somewhat empty inside ourselves. And all of this great adventure of life that goes on through many incarnations is this constant, serious attempt on our part to fill that sense of incompleteness with something and we, we seek to fill it with fame or money or human love or position or uh, whatever, sensuality, power, whatever it might be but the difficulty is, it's really simple, it never works we sort of stave off that feeling of loneliness and that feeling of insecurity For a time Maybe we become rich enough Or powerful enough Or mean enough Or closed down enough That we think we have it Finally figured out But because it is Inherently impossible To feel completely fulfilled Except for God I quoted St. Augustine last night But not quite correctly What St. Augustine said is Thou hast made us for thyself, Lord and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Thee." And this is all that we're doing. Master made the the most uh, interesting statement. He said that before you can realize God, every single desire that you have has to be fulfilled. And Swamiji said to Master, he said, Master, even like a little innocent desire, like the desire for an ice cream cone when I was a child, and Master said, yes, even that. Which is actually just a terrible prospect. You don't even really know where to put such a a, a statement. And I've actually tried to think about it for a long time because on the face of it, it makes God seem so incredibly unfair. I mean, think about when you were a little child and all the tantrums you had about random things that you wanted that your parents would never buy for you. And each one of those is registered somewhere in our chakras and has to be fulfilled. And if you just take it mechanically, it's exhausting. Fortunately, Kriya cuts across that because Kriya will just dissolve the vrittis all on its own without having to deal with each thing. But still you have Master's statement. So I've thought about that a lot, just trying to understand not merely what he said in the literal sense, but why he would have said such a thing. And when we talk about what is, what is yoga, according to Patanjali, he says it's the neutralization of the whirlpools of feeling in the heart. In other words, the stilling of the whirlpools of feeling. And in another context, Swami Kriyananda said, that we concentrate a lot in meditation on the idea that we have to still the mind. But he said, it's not actually the mind that makes us restless, it's the heart that makes us restless. Because the heart is always longing for something. It's it's reaching out, and the reason it's always longing is there's a thought in our mind, I would be happier if. I would be happier if I had supper instead of sitting here being hungry. I would be happier if I could, you know, check my email instead of sitting here wondering whether I have any emails. I would be happier if someone would want to marry me and think that I'm wonderful. I would be happier if I had a job, a child, my money. It goes on and on. And whether that desire is very small, I would be happier if I had an ice cream cone. There's some piece of us that has gone from the perfect contentment of knowing that we are one with God, to I would be happier if. And so what causes us to reincarnate completely, to be unable to meditate, repeatedly I mean, to be unable to meditate, to be discontented in ourselves, is a very small and simple thought. I would be happier if. And so what Master is saying to us is not really I don't believe that we have to go out and <sighs> eat the ice cream cone and buy the toy truck and get the book you know and have the great home and all of these different things although that is also part of it but what we have to get over is the idea that I would be happier if and in our Gita commentary it talks about the four, the four kinds of people who seek God the motivations for why we seek God. We seek God because we're in distress. You know, people will remember God when all other options have failed and we can't think of anything else and then we're forced, oh yeah, maybe now I'll try God. I mean, that's kind of like somebody who's estranged from their parents or never calls their parents except when they need money. You know, it's like you never hear from your child except when you need money. And when they need money, and you don't really necessarily think of that as a really great relationship, do you? Because it's they only call you when they're in distress. And our relationship with God is like the relationship uh, of any relationship that we have. it's It's a an interactive um, love relationship that is essentially governed by the same principles that govern any other. So if the only time we turn to God is when we're unhappy, then that really is an indication of where our attention really is. Our attention is on pleasure and ease, and only when it's interrupted does it occur to us to ask God. But of course that's better than nothing. Swamiji would tell us that the Vedas contain instructions for all these different things, ways in which you can get what you want in the world. And I asked, Swamiji, why on earth would the scripture give you instructions for worldly happiness? Swami's answer, I don't know how valid it was, but he said simply because it gets people in the habit of asking God for the things they want. And then when they begin to have greater and more refined desires, it will occur to them that that's the source. So, just to make sure my memory is correct on this, he says, and then there are those who seek God because of an understanding. That we begin to realize that the real problem is that we're always dissatisfied. And we begin to understand that whatever we're doing in this world, that our distress is not, um, that our distress is inherent in our reliance upon external things for our satisfaction. And so then it isn't just a matter of thinking, if I can just solve this one problem, then I'll be fine and I can go back to my life. And there are a lot of people who do come onto the spiritual path for a period of time. Master, you used to make jokes about that, you know. I've lost my job, I've lost my wife, I've lost my children, they've all left me. I'm going to become a monk, (laughs) you know. And Master said, I believe, it's not you who've renounced the world, it's the world who's renounced you. So when the world renounces us, we suddenly turn toward God and act as if we're being big renunciates. But the understanding comes, and the understanding in our hearts is, "I'll never be happy until I really align myself with the divine." You know, and this is also a progression through the caste system, as Master explains it, which I won't, I can't explain in great detail. And I mentioned this last night too, the vaisya level. Of the second caste the merchant consciousness where we're perfectly willing to give as long as we get a characteristic of that is if I can get the world in line the way I want it to be then I'll be happy and so that's when we're in distress and that doesn't work we begin to look inward but what happens is as we begin to look inward for a while we, we rise to the level of Arjuna we, we rise to the level of a kshatriya where we suddenly realize that there is a battle but that battle is not with the world outside that battle is not about making enough money or setting things up the way I want them that battle is with my own inclination to believe I would be happier if you know there's a certain point where our own karma is extremely interesting to us And I presume that it's the same in India as it is in America. We go to astrologers and they tell us what our karma is. We go to psychics and they tell us what our karma is. We go to ancient sages who tell us what our karma is. We're extremely interested in what happened in the past life and why I'm upset with this person and why I want that to happen and why I want to live in this place and all of those details. And we spend, actually, lots of incarnations consciously or otherwise being fascinated with ourselves You know, our own karma is so interesting to us. But then a certain kind of deeper understanding begins to come, and we realize that all karma is exactly the same. Whatever it might be, it comes right back to, I would be happier if. And when we finally begin to understand, as the Gita puts it, that I would be happier if I knew that God loved me, if I experienced his love, It's very hard for us to fully and completely comprehend how powerful that can be. And the only way we ever know it is, every so often something happens, whether it's in the midst of a satsang, whether it's in the midst of Kriya practice, whether it's a moment out in nature, whether it's a perfect moment with people we love, and all of a sudden one becomes aware of the fact that I am perfectly content. I had that experience a lot of time when I would be with Swami Kriyananda. There were many different ways that his company affected people. There were many different ways that it affected me. From 1987 until his passing in 2013, I did not live in the same community Swamiji lived in. In fact, I often lived on a different continent. He was in Europe, he was in India, and I was always in America. So I didn't always... The first 16 years, I lived next door to him, essentially. So I could just come and go from his company. And whenever, most of the time when he traveled, I traveled with him. Much of the time, I would travel with him. And I was rarely separated from him for more than a few days. Then for the last 30 years, I would see him intermittently, but often, nonetheless. While he was living, the way I realized, and I, I have shared this with some of you, but... Even when I was far away from him, he was the geographic center of the planet. And it was something that I I never had really cognized until he left the planet. But wherever he was, in some subconscious way, it would be like I would always be leaning a little bit in that direction. I have such a poor sense of direction that I didn't actually know which way was where he was. But it would be like I would be myself, but a lot of me would be leaning Toward wherever he was And when I was in his company He would often visit in, in our house, in our community And people would come and go And even when I would go up to Ananda village And there would be, you know, a hundred people in a room with Swamiji I wouldn't always be sitting next to him, talking to him But I was always completely conscious of where he was and people would try to start other conversations with me. And I would just have to say to them, as long as I'm in the room where Swami is, I can't really put my mind on anything else. And it occurred to me in a, one of those moments, at that time actually, when this thought came to me, I was with Swamiji in Goa. He used to take a vacation in Goa almost every January. He started when he was in Europe to get away from the cold winters. In Italy, and then he started when he was living in uh, Gorgon here to get away from the cold winter and the bad air. And I went with him I don't know how many times. And he stayed in this particular very nice hotel there, and there was a short walk from his room to where the dining room was. And Swamiji was not strong physically. In fact, on some of those holidays, he wasn't even able to make that short walk but this time he could. And I generally go where I'm going at a pretty steady pace. I usually don't notice so much the journey as that I'm, I'm going somewhere and I just go there. I like to be a little vigorous. Swami walked very, very slowly. And I became conscious of the fact that even though he was walking so slowly, I didn't have the slightest sense of impatience. I didn't have any sense that the, the I didn't have any sense that the pace was too slow And it was only when I sort of looked at it I realized how just very gently and leisurely We were, you know, t- traversing this short distance I was also conscious of the fact That I was conscious of no particular anything other There was simply no reality outside right where I was Because there was no part of me that thought <coughs> I would be happier if. Now, it was a very dramatic and unique situation that really can't be replicated anymore because he's not on the planet and we're not all with him in Goa and if all of us were with him in Goa the whole thing would be completely different. But what happens is at any point if we can reach back in our consciousness and remember what it feels like to feel that we are exactly where we are supposed to be and nothing more is required. You know, that is the moment when God is with us. And it comes in many interesting ways. It also comes through creative work. A friend of mine was a physicist and he was getting a PhD at Stanford as it happened. And he was a little concerned because he said, I sit down in the morning to start working on my physics problems, and when I look up, the day is past. And he was a little worried about that. I said, you should thank God every day that he comes to you in this form and holds you. I was reminded in this sense of a story about the life of Ramakrishna. And he had that extravagant disciple named Girish Ghosh, who was also known as a a Bengali playwright and a poet and a very famous libertine and lived a very dissolute life and he helped create, as I understand it, the, the theater in Bengal. And he brought a lot of women onto stage, onto the stage, but no high class woman would come onto stage. So the women that he brought onto stage, he was often bringing up from lower professions, even prostitution and so on. He was raising them to the level of actresses. So the whole crowd of people was not high caste. And when Girish would bring his theater troops over to meet the great avatar Ramakrishna, some of the higher caste people would be a bit scandalized that all of these people were here. But Ramakrishna just welcomed them and loved having them with him. And after they left, when some of the others were lamenting that these low caste people were there and were allowed to be with Ramakrishna, he answered, he said, Right now the god they worship is art and music he said, and someday they will change, you know, but then he said, the God they worship is art in music, he said, but oh, they know how to worship. And that was such a beautiful way to put it, isn't it? He said, someday they'll move, you know, they'll understand that it is Divine Mother that they really love behind it all. But what we're really trying to learn is how to worship, how to be so lost in the idea of the divine or so lost in anything that draws our heart so completely that we understand what it means to feel i don't need anything i wouldn't be happier if there is no if and whenever there is that moment of cessation of all those desires then we get a touch of what of what the divine is about In the book of Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him, there's a story that was actually told by Krishnadas, one of the devotees in America. And he put together two moments. And one moment was when he suffered a severe blow on the head and actually started to exit his body. And he had one of those near-death experiences, or death in return, you would call it. And he talked about being drawn into the light and being drawn into the presence of a light being and when he was this was before he came onto our path and in the presence of that light being the way Krishnadas described it he said it was it wasn't as let's see how he put it he said he felt complete completely free of all desires or and then he described it more more subtly he said in that presence any desire that tried to arise was completely overcome By the presence of that light And he talked about just that feeling That there was no possible way He could be more fulfilled Than he felt just at that moment And then because of the book I'm, I was about Swami Kriyananda He talked about meeting Swamiji in Texas A number of years later And uh, kneeling in front of Swamiji And Looking into his eyes and having Swamiji bless him. And Krishnadasa said he went right back immediately to that same place where he felt what it was to have no other desire except to be exactly where we are. You know, we make it very complicated the likes and dislikes, what is my karma, what is my dharma. It's all really very, very simple. I haven't dealt with all the rest of this Gita commentary because. The Gita can go on forever. So just this one tiny part, this is the understanding. And then the second verse that I was reading, Krishna says, Outstanding among the wise is he whose devotion is constant and one-pointed. I am above all things dear to that sage and he of all beings is dearest to me. Now elsewhere in the Gita and in the other teachings we talk about God, how impartial God is. So what Krishna is really talking about here is that he can give more. He can give more of himself because the wisest of sage is simply one pointed in his devotion. Now, the way we have to work with that practically is that our there's so many things that take up our time isn't it so? I mean all of us we live very busy lives I am devoted to the spiritual path but I have you know many practical responsibilities fewer when I'm traveling but when I live where I usually live I have many practical responsibilities all of us have it so it's not as if we have the luxury that Lahiri Mahashaya had after he um, retired from being an accountant of just sitting in the living room and meditating day and night uh, we would uh, become restless if we tried so our one pointed devotion isn't that we're always just, we have only that one thought in our mind but that one pointed devotion is what is always going on behind everything that we are doing behind everything we are doing is this constant chant, Divine Mother I live for you, Master I live for you And even whatever it is that I'm doing I'm only doing it for you Master said to us Just take me with you Wherever you go And even when we have to go into the most mundane Or the most difficult Or the most challenging circumstances God is above it all It doesn't trouble Master To have to step into a crowded grocery store Or take care of a noisy child Or sit in an office with competitive colleagues. It, it doesn't pull him down to do it. In fact, it lifts him up to do it. It lifts him up because he is in the company of the devotee who is dearest to him, whose devotion is one-pointed. That's, that's how... Um, that's the only way that we can value ourselves. You know, every other evaluation... It's just, it comes and goes You know, we can be the greatest on this planet But there's countless planets You know, and we can be the greatest on this planet In whatever it is, and then time will pass And we'll be completely erased The only thing that endures Is our consciousness of God And the only thing that endures Is the degree and the extent And the one-pointedness of our devotion. You know, wouldn't it, isn't it a lovely thought to be the one who is dearest to the divine? Isn't that what we want to be? Just imagine, and the wonderful thing about it is, you know, the Radha Krishna stories tell you that when they meet with Krishna in the moonlight that every gopi gets to dance with Krishna. (laughs) You know, that every gopi thinks that she alone is Krishna's favorite. I mean, that it's such a, a beautiful um, um, story that is absolutely completely true. You know, Sister Gyanamata, master's most advanced woman disciple, wrote him a letter in which she said, you know, words to these, this effect. She said, I know you were sent by Babaji and the other great masters. You came to this world to start a world movement, to transition the world into Dwapara Yuga, that you had this grand work. She said, but I like to think you incarnated and came to America just for me. Now, that she knew was not at all selfish, nor would she think for a moment that Master didn't want to hear that. She knew, in fact, That thought in her mind was exactly what Master wanted her to feel. Because that realization tells us that she knew how deeply, profoundly, unconditionally Master loved her. I had an experience in seclusion once that was very profound for me. Oftentimes when we meditate we think in terms of giving to the Divine giving to God and it occurred to me in this meditation that maybe instead of giving to Divine Mother as I was thinking I should try to receive Divine Mother's love and so I in my visualization I tried to become a magnet for that love to come to me and it was very startling for me to realize the extent to which I could feel a subtle barrier almost literally over my heart. And so my mind was saying I wanted to receive Divine Mother's love. But my heart was filled with conditions, you know, and a lot of it was unresolved angers and griefs and desires, all that sort of thing. My heart was filled with, I would be happier if. And it wasn't that Divine Mother wasn't trying to love me, but my vibration of I would be happier if was simply incompatible with what she wanted to give me. And it was a very, um, well, it was a profound turning point, I would call it, in my spiritual life, because I began to see the extent to which I myself had to surrender. You know, we We tend to think somehow that God is not responding to us, but it's really we who are not responding to God with all that we're holding. And so our ambition should be, as this verse in the seventh chapter of the Gita is, I want to be the one who's dearest to the divine. And it's very easy to do that. He who is one pointed in his devotion, he who is wise and understands, this is not something we'll decide tonight and have perfect in the morning. You know, that in many ways is the greatness of this path. We get close to the edge of it and it expands to infinity. But these exquisite words of the Gita, wisest is the sage, who is one pointed in his devotion, to whom I am the dearest. The Lord is the dearest thing in my life because then I am the dearest. He is the dearest to me. And That is the destiny of all of us. Swamiji said to us once after a really beautiful satsang, you could feel his consciousness was way expanded. And he looked at us and there was this look in his eye that if we could have seen ourselves as he was looking at us, I think we would have just been fields of light, as Master described to people once. And Swamiji said, You'll get it right sooner or later, he said. Why waste a few million years? (laughs) And every so often I ask myself, if I'm going to become one pointed in my devotion and become the dearest of Krishna's children, why waste a few million years? Why not now?